Well, this is our final sermon in our fall series. We've called it Transform Discipleship the Jesus Way. And uh, today we're going to look at the connection between the arts and discipleship. Now, I've been using that word discipleship. What does that mean again? Discipleship is simply the process of transformation. The Holy Spirit working inside of us to get us to slowly become more and more like Jesus Christ, to take on his love, his compassion, all those wonderful, amazing characteristics of Jesus. And it takes a lifetime. Now, Darren, did you say the connection between the arts and discipleship? I did. Don't worry, that will all become clear as we go along. First, though, I wanted to tell you about a famous art collector. And he was walking through a very small town, and he was, oh, isn't this cute? It's quaint, and he was looking at the different houses, and then there was a, the main street with all the stores, and he noticed one store in particular, a big front porch area, and out on the very front of the porch was a cat, and it was lapping milk out of a saucer, and he thought, ah, oh, it's pretty cute, small town scene, the cat out in front of the store, and all of a sudden, he stopped and he did a double take and he looked at the saucer and he's like, I know that pottery. I know that saucer. That is extremely valuable and it's really, really old. Clearly, the person who owns this store doesn't know the value or they wouldn't be letting a cat lap milk out of it. So he goes, how can I buy that saucer cheaply? And he goes, I know. So he goes into the store and he says, hi, uh, says, I'm new to town. I was just walking by, and I noticed you got a cat outside. He said, uh, I'd be happy to buy a cat. I've been looking for a cat. I will give you $2 for the cat. And the store owner says, well, actually, sir, no, you know, the cat isn't really for sale. Okay, no problem. Well, he says, you know, I really, really need a cat. And he says, I've, I've got some mice. I'd love a hungry cat to go after those mice, clean that up for me. He goes, I'll give you $20 for the cat. And the guy's like, $20 for the cat? Sold. Okay, and he says, hey, since I'm kind of buying the cat for that $20, do you mind throwing in that old saucer? I said, you know, kind of allow uh, me, it would save me from having to get a dish. And the cat is, the cat's used to that saucer. And the store owner looks at him and he says, sorry, friend, he says, but that is my lucky saucer. He goes, your lucky saucer? And he goes, yeah, so far this week, I have sold 68 cats. Okay, give me a laugh in the comment section there. Figured with Dr. Bonnie Henry's announcement this week, we could all use a little bit of a laugh. All joking aside, our exploration of the arts today is a wonderful and often neglected aspect of that process of being transformed. That God can actually use the arts, whether we just receive it, the art someone else does, and that draws us closer to God, or we ourselves get involved in the arts. Either way, God can use it powerfully. Our text today is Exodus chapter 35. Uh, it will be on the screens, but if you have a print Bible, I encourage you to, to open that and just mark that place. Exodus chapter 35. It's probably one of those chapters you may have just kind of skimmed over in the past, but I want to zero in there today. It's such a rich, beautiful chapter. We're going to read today, beginning in verse 4, down to verse uh, 19. Moses said to the whole Israelite community, 
This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and other fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed red, another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. All who are skilled among you are to come and make everything the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle with its tent and its covering, class frames, crossbars, posts, and bases. The ark, the ark of the covenant with its poles and the atonement cover and the curtain that shields it. The table with its poles and its articles and the bread of the presence. The lampstand that is for light with its accessories, lamps, and oil for the light. The altar of incense with its poles, the anointing oil and fragrant incense, the curtain for the doorway at the entrance to the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its bronze basin and its stand, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and bases and the curtain of the entrance to the courtyard, the tent pegs for the tabernacle and for the courtyard and their ropes, the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his son's as they serve as priests. So a pretty detailed description, really interesting. My first point is simply entitled, A Beautiful Project. And God had this project for the Israelites. God is an artist. You know, you and I get to see God's artistry all the time when we look in nature from the mountains, the beaches, the forests, the animals of the earth and sea to humanity. The creation reflects the glory of God. Psalm 19, 1 and 2 says it so well. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. And in the book of Exodus, God functions as an artist. This quote is from David Rourke. He's a pastor of Uh, Creative Resources at Village Church in Dallas, Texas. This is what he says. And in the book of Exodus, God himself functions as an artist, establishing particular instructions on how to build the temple, I think he meant the tabernacle, and design the priestly garments. Full of symbolic meaning and physical beauty, these artistic details and designs don't come from the mind of Moses or Aaron, or anyone else, but they come directly from the triune God of the Bible. Not beautiful? If the God we love and serve is an artist, then surely art isn't something lesser or pointless. Now, here's the situation. The Israelites are going through the desert. They've escaped Egypt. God has, through the Exodus, miraculous circumstances, brought them out of Egypt. He has brought them into the promised land. And, but before they can get there, there's this whole series of years, 40 in total, where God led them on a wandering journey through the desert. 
Now, God knew during that 40 years they would need a portable center of worship. So he got them to construct this tabernacle, this tent that could be assembled, put up. When they camped, it would be this very center of the camp. All the people would see it, and that would be the center of worship for the people. And then when they were ready to move on, it would all come apart, be loaded up, taken to the next place, and reset up. Now, if God had just decided, I'm going to make it purely simple and functional, we would understand. You got to keep taking the thing down, putting it back up, loading it on carts. But for a really interesting reason, God didn't just make the tabernacle functional. He actually made it a work of art. Isn't that amazing? A couple of chapters later, God gets super specific in the design details of the robe that the priests would wear. He said they made pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen around the hem of the robe. And they made bells of pure gold and attached them around the hem between the pomegranates. God is such an artist. Again, David Rourke has some great insights. He says, God isn't simply interested in creating art that mimics creation. He's also interested in innovation. As we see with the skirts of the priestly garments, that robe of the priestly, uh, or the the hem of the priestly robe, God commands that the pomegranates be purple, blue, and scarlet. Those are not the natural colors of a pomegranate fruit. This means God isn't just for art that symbolizes something spiritual or religious uh, or reflects something in the natural world, but God is for beauty, creativity, and imagination. God is for art. God isn't just content with the plain. You know, Europe, much of the Western world, from Australia to New Zealand to North America, are skeptical and sometimes downright hostile about the Christian faith. That would certainly be true here on Vancouver Island and the Gulf Islands. Go hang out on Salt Spring, chat with people in a coffee shop. won't take you very long to figure out there's a real sentiment of kind of anti-big business, suspicion of the government, anti-religious in the sense of being against the institution of the church, be that Protestant or or Roman Catholic. They aren't anti-Jesus necessarily, just anti-big religion as they see it. But you know, one of the things that still speaks even to a skeptical and jaded person, Christian art. I want to talk to you this morning really quickly about one of the most significant pieces of Christian art in history. It's called the Ghent Altarpiece. It's found in St. Bavos Cathedral in the little town of Ghent in Belgium. And it was done by two brothers, Herbert and Jan van Eyck. It was completed in 1432. This is old. Hundreds of thousands, probably a million people have seen this thing. They've come into the church and just stood in front of it. It takes up numerous panels. This thing is absolutely massive. And the details of it are just incredible. Right in the center, Jesus the Lamb. It's that incredible picture and his blood is flowing the cup of christ is catching it 
symbolizing the giving of His life for all of humanity. The sheer volume of hours it would have taken. The, the details of this are incredible, from the natural landscape to the people. Each person has a place in history. To plan it out, paint everything. Trees and plants and buildings and towers and, and people. Amazing. There's one part in particular, the singing of the angelic choir. And even online, just looking at the pictures this week, the details of the angelic choir, I think we're going to throw up that slide next, absolutely phenomenal. And lots and lots of people have stood in front of the Ghent altarpiece and studied it and looked at it and been emotionally moved by the experience. Now, the painting itself has quite the history. It's been loved and hated throughout history, so much so that during the Protestant Reformation, so it was painted in 1432, we can uh, fast forward to the middle of the 16th century, about 1550 or so, and some ultra-conservative Protestants taking the command not to make a graven image in a really wrong way tried to damage the Ghent altarpiece. Then in the French Revolution, the French stole it, took the whole thing back to Paris. They eventually gave it back, which was nice. Then various thieves have tried to steal certain panels. They usually get recovered at certain points. In World War I, the Germans uh, took a whole bunch of it, took it back to, uh, to Germany. It was returned back to Ghent, Belgium, as part of the Treaty of Versailles. And then again, in the Second World War, the Nazis stole it. And if you've ever seen the movie The Monuments Men with uh, Matt Damon, George Clooney, Bill Murray, that's a true story. That, there was a, a little small division of soldiers that were art historians, and they were formed in the American military. And as the Second World War, they could see uh, that the tide of battle had turned and the Allied forces were in mainland Europe. They sent these guys in to try and save and find the art. And one of the pieces they saved was the Ghent altarpiece. And they actually found it in a massive cave that had been a salt mine, and it was dry in there, so the Nazis had stored all of this art in there. So again, it was finally returned. The thing has quite a history. But the bottom line is that it has been able to speak of the beauty and power of God's salvation history to generation upon generation upon generation. So all that's pretty informative, you might say, Darren. That's pretty interesting. But what difference is that actually going to make in my life and yours? Well, number one, God is an artist. And it's well worth your time to stop and look. You might see a sunset, a brand new baby that's just been born, snow-covered forests, tropical fish when you're on holidays. I think it's a really great line to add into your prayer life. God, thank you. For being an amazing artist. Number two, if you have friends or family that are skeptical, jaded about the Christian faith, talk about Christian art. You know, even the most jaded atheist probably wouldn't mind chatting about Michelangelo's David, that massive, beautiful sculpture made out of one entire piece of marble, one of the treasures of the entire world absolutely amazing. Number three, 
You know, God isn't just interested in paintings and sculptures. His best work he saves for human beings. And I think it's a beautiful prayer to say, Jesus, here is my life. The good, the bad, the ugly. Take it and make a beautiful work of art out of it. All right, well, Exodus 35 continues the story. We're going to pick it up in verse 20 and see how God invited the entire nation of Israel to get in on the act. It says in verse 20, Then the whole Israelite community withdrew from Moses' presence, and everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service, and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, brooches, earrings, rings, and ornaments. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Everyone who had blue or purple or scarlet yarn or fine linen or goat hair, ramskins dyed red or other durable, excuse me, leather brought them. Those presenting an offering of silver or bronze brought it as an offering to the Lord. And everyone who had acacia wood for any part of the work brought it as well. Every skilled woman spun with her hands and brought what she had spun, blue, purple, or scarlet yarn, or fine linen. And all the women who were willing and had the skill spun the goat hair. The leaders brought onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and the breastplate. They also brought spices and olive oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for fragrant incense. All the Israelite men and women who were willing brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do. Second point simply entitled cheerful givers. And you know, assemble any group of people together and you will have some people who are so talented. They are musicians, singers, some who are sculptors, painters, some who can be DJs, some are dancers, some can do incredible moves in ballet dancing or jazz dancing or tap or modern or hip hop. Then there's people like me, can't do any of those things. I can lift heavy stuff, so if you have a couch to move, I'm your guy. But pretty much artistically, I'm pretty hopeless. Now, I am dead sure in that congregation of huge amount of uh, people of Israel, there was a guy just like me there. They're wandering through the desert. They set up the tabernacle. The relatives of the Israelites are telling this guy, sing quietly, dude. Just try to like blend in. We're trying to sound good here. Now, did God leave people like that out of his great tabernacle art project? No. He still got them involved by calling them to supply the material for the artist to work with. As I read those verses, isn't it encouraging how willing the people were? What a wide variety of things were needed, from spices and olive oil to make sweet-smelling incense to precious jewels, gold items brought with good and willing hearts. I love this quote from the New International Bible Commentary. It says, The voluntary nature of the contributions is stressed throughout the section. Men, women, and leaders all showed a willing spirit. 
Here it is emphasized that the necessary skills come from God, just as it was stressed in the previous section that materials came from the people. Willingness and ability make a formidable pair. What a great line. Willingness and ability make a formidable pair. In the church, it is too often the case that the willing are not able and the able are not willing. Ouch! Well, God did an amazing thing there. And the everyday calling for you and I is to bring that combination of willingness and ability. If we are gifted in the visual or the performing arts or music, then be willing to be used by God in those areas. If you're like me, be willing to move some couches. Whatever works, but it all starts with the heart. All right, we've got our final five verses. We're going to pick it up in verse 30. Then Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for working gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and a holy son of Ahasmach, oh, that is a hard name, I practiced it this week, Ahizamach, there we go, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work, as engravers, designers, embroiders, in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. Well, our last point today is called Holy Spirit-Empowered Artists. And we can see that right in this chapter in Exodus, that God recognizes artists in the person of Bezalel, his assistant Aholiab, and the, and the individuals they train up in craftsmanship. In these passages, we learn that God specifically gives specific people artistic skills and talents. In other words, the idea of an artist isn't foreign or unknown to God. It's not a secular or a worldly concept. It's a divine gifting and vocation. As he did with that man Bezalel and Aholiab, God uniquely wires men and women as artists, and in giving them his spirit, he uses them for his purposes to create art that reflects and brings him glory. I came across the story this week of an amazing artist. His name is Mako Fujimura. His family, his parents, had gotten married in Japan, had emigrated to the United States, had come to Boston, Massachusetts in the late 1950s. And uh, Mako was actually born in Boston in 1960. And around the age of two, his parents took him back to Japan. He was raised in Japan all the way through his teen years and then came back to the United States. And pretty soon on, pretty early on, they recognize this young guy has incredible artistic ability. At that point in his life, Mako didn't know the Lord. 
And it was actually going back to Japan and studying this incredible uh, ancient Japanese uh, painting techniques. He's kind of mastered two different Japanese techniques. He has an art degree from a university in the States where he really infused modern art and combined it with these ancient Japanese techniques. And it was somewhere in his university career, he actually read the poem of William Blake, the English poet. And he had been feeling this spiritual call. He'd actually started to attend a church. He was married at the time. And that poem from William Blake spoke to him so powerfully. And as he continued to go to church, he heard about Christ, gave his heart. And he has become one of the most incredible Christian artists I've ever heard of. And so I want you to watch this video. It's six minutes long, but I think you're going to be absolutely amazed at what God has called Mako Fujimura to be a part of. We're going to play it now. There's a line in the contemporary art world. This is the line. You can paint and you can um, worship but don't do them together. And if you step over that line, you're in essence setting yourself up for crucifixion. I am Makoto Fujimura. I am an artist and I am working on a crossway project to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible. And, uh, uh, welcome to my studio. <laughs> Marco is trained in an in a ancient technique. It's a Japanese technique. It's called Nehanga, but he uses it in a, a very um, expansive sense. He's looking backwards at tradition. He really spent the time learning a tradition um, and learning how to do it well. And at the same time, he's well recognized as a contemporary artist in the mainstream, you know, in your Chelsea galleries and your museums. His work is always, people, even people who don't understand painting look at his work and kind of go, wow. I don't think there's one ingredient that makes Marco's art unique. It is his, his voice. He expresses in his art what his relation to religion and faith is as, as an artist. The project is to illuminate four Gospels, Matthew, Luke, Mark, and John. And each of the chapter headings will have a letter that I designed and the embellishments that go along the sides. And I have complete artistic freedom. Uh, we will use the best printing possible. So it's one of the few times when contemporary art and the Bible have, have met. I just got this uh, from the publisher, so I'm just starting to process it. I, I want to design each page so it reads consistent with the message. It, it's another way of reading the text. The New York City art community is still sort of the center of the art community in the world, which meant that he really had to engage the art market here in New York City one-to-one. -one. Very hard to do. It's really risky for, a, for an artist uh, who's working in the contemporary mainstream of art to be Christian, to be overtly Christian, because people are immediately going to make assumptions about you and what you're trying to say in your art. Within the art community, there are 
was always sort of a spiritual drift of things, but they didn't want anything that confined them. And they saw that uh, Christianity somehow was confinement, somehow was anti-modern, somehow was anti-development of themselves. And at the same time, the church is very suspicious of the art world. Christians have had a very contentious relationship with art, especially Protestants and evangelicals have had a really difficult time understanding what's going on in the art world and how they can be involved with it. Now, here comes Mako illustrating one of the most important cultural artifacts that exist, the Bible. And he's bringing a global perspective, he's bringing a modern art perspective, he's bringing insight uh, to scripture that's so much deeper than maybe most artists, even believers, would have. I think that having Mako's art, which is non-representational, next to the words of scripture, invites the reader to take the words of scripture and sort of see what they see in the art and how that connects with the words that they're reading. Because the words are transcendent and the art in a lot of ways uh, reflects that transcendence. Abstraction, 20th century abstraction, uh, has really given me this language to tap into the mystery of creation. Everything he's been working on for his whole life, this is the, the, the reason. I was thinking about John 1 um, in the beginning was Word and word, word was with God. So John to me is that metaphysical mystery that um, goes beyond what we can understand. He, he would want this to be just right. He's really bringing all of his art and expertise into each piece. He would want this to be just perfect. And then uh, this painting, which is Gospel Mark, and uh, I was thinking how Mark is so much about Jesus talk, talking about the judgment fire. Fire is also to sanctify us, to purify us. So he's taking his craft, he's taking his experience, he's taking his creativity, he's taking his faith, and he's able to produce works that says, this is who I am. And then Luke, which is a bit more complicated and nuanced. Just watching him work and talking to him in the studio and looking at the works for the first time, and it is, um, I think it's the most fun Marcos ever had painting ever. The painting that I'm going to be starting today is, is Matthew, and that's going to be a very monochromatic painting. Azurite, Malachite, monochromatic image, blue image. Okay, here we go. If I were to put a few words in reflection of, of Marco's work, it would be his faith, his family, and um, his compassion for uh, this, uh, this world. I just love it. That is such an amazing example of someone that God is uniquely gifted and how he's using his art, his faith comes out in just really beautiful ways in such classy and amazing ways that the art community in New York really respects what he is doing. And you know, if, if that's true, then artists that we come across should be affirmed and encouraged that they have been created with purpose and that what they are doing is sacred and meaningful. I want to specifically talk to our high school students and our young adults for a second. 
God might be calling you to a career to use your art, maybe in the computer realm, computer game development, computer-generated images for movies. There's huge art departments in movies now, graphic design. You won't hear it at a university or college or art school, so I'm telling you now, that is a gift from God, and it's a worthy calling. Don't listen if people say stuff like, oh yeah, it must be nice, you just get to fool around all day on the computer and get paid for it. Tell them to go read Exodus 35 and to stop bothering you. Now, God was very clear with Bezalel and Aholiab. They weren't just to keep all their God-given skills to themselves. They were to show the other artists what to do. Verse 34, not only had Bezalel power to command, but he was to take pains to instruct. Those that rule should teach. And those to whom God has given knowledge about the should be willing to communicate it for the benefit of others, not coveting it up or monopolizing it. Art is powerful. When God gives his people the law in Exodus 20, the third commandment is to not make for yourself a carved image. God recognizes the allure and the beauty of art. He knew what idols could do to a person. And he warns us not to worship the creation over the creator. He knows that art can form and shape us both positively and negatively. Again, it is powerful. We also shouldn't take it lightly that God chooses and uses art as a conduit through which he dwells with his people in the tabernacle. As I said at the beginning, God could have just made it a functional tent that cruised through the desert. But now he spent so much time telling the people exactly how to design it, build it, so that it was just beautiful. God understands the significance of art so much so that he dwells with his people in the midst of it. Now I want to take one last second and speak to those of our older, wiser folks, our seniors. You have a unique role of encouragement. When you see a high school student or a young adult showing artistic ability, maybe it's visual arts, maybe it's performing arts, or any branch of music, go up and show some interest. Meet them at church when we're allowed to gather again. Say, pull out your phone, show, show me what you've been working on, and they'll be happy to show you some sketches, some paintings, uh, maybe the one little minute clip of them doing dance or hip-hop or something. Maybe it's in the baking realm. Maybe they made the perfect cake or something. That kind of encouragement will stay with a kid or a young adult and propel them forward. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is the final sermon in our Transformed series. Our series poster shows all of the characteristics we have talked about this fall. The closer the people on the poster get to Jesus, the more characteristics they have. Look at the list of specific characteristics. Our mind, our heart, our worship, our rest, serving, our gratitude, nature, our work, and the arts. The journey of following Jesus is not an instapot. We don't just kind of hit 20 minutes and bing, we're done. It takes a lifetime. But God is faithful through His Spirit 
to build these characteristics, these practices into our lives so that we look more like Jesus. You don't start out fully mature in Christ, but the more we stick with it, the more we keep inviting the Holy Spirit, keep working on me, chip away the bad stuff, keep building in the good, the more it transforms us to look like Jesus. As the old observation rightly says, you and I might be the only Bible some people choose to read. That doesn't mean we have to be perfect, but it does mean slow and steady growth. Transformed. Discipleship the Jesus way. Amen? Amen. Give me an amen in the comments.